All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today, Lisa Flicker and I spoke with Michael Daschle. Michael is an extraordinary person. He is currently the Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Brookfield Properties. I'm sure you've heard of Brookfield. Who hasn't? They're huge. He started his career uh, in the Army, um, went to West Point, then went, got, went to Stanford, Wharton, Cambridge, just some little schools like that. And now he is leading the charge in one of the largest property owners in the world. So no small task ahead of him. This is a topic that's very close to our our hearts. We know how much uh, impact real estate has on the environment and how um, focusing on the bottom line can also mean focusing on sustainability as well. And so please listen. And I would love for people to give us feedback and share this episode with their friends because maybe some people would like to start their careers and in getting into uh, sustainability within the real estate industry. So as always, please like, share, and spread the word and send us any questions you have. And until then, and until next time, have a great summer. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and I think that your story is going to be the most interesting of all and of all stories of no all pressure stories. oh my goodness to the impact in the impact real you estate have no market. idea how much i've been talking you up over the last five years <laughs> well maybe not five years but certainly the last year i think that um you know no pressure but you're gonna single-handedly save the planet so and save oh, this boy. podcast yeah. if this one doesn't do well we're done <laughs> yeah your podcast has been rocking so um, oh, i've been you, listening so yeah thank you so you know the first thing i'd love to talk about obviously you're super smart you've had an incredible career but is what drew you into real estate and then out of and you know went to wharton got your mba went to stanford undergrad got into real estate what drew you there and then kind of to the sustainability niche Mm, yes. So um, the real estate interest kind of came from a, uh, a, a chance investment opportunity. <laughs> uh, so my wife and I were both in the army. Uh, oh, wow. We both deployed to Iraq in 2006 and Afghanistan in 2008 and nine. And what did um, you do in the army? I was a helicopter pilot, actually. And so, yeah, so. can we just take one step back? One second. Yeah, let's Let me just take back. a unfocused there what did you always dream of being a helicopter pilot was that your dream growing up no no and i'd say one of the um themes of my professional career so far is i tend not to following follow your dreams the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> follow the uh the interest of the moment i would say <laughs> and uh really just like if i could generically like say follow your passion or that which like was super interesting like that has been it i, I really am not a long-term planner <laughs> you are your feet so, on. i love it exactly yeah so um so i went into west point thinking that i would use uh you know the the army experience and the education at west point to basically like launch a some sort of a political career i had some family in politics i'm like that's the direction i should start in you know and then halfway through realized that's not the direction i want to start in and uh but I, I loved being there for school. I loved what I could study without pressure for having to study what would give me a job afterwards. So what did you I study there? Philosophy. Oh, philosophy. Philosophy. Wow. Yeah. Where'd you grow yeah. up? And 
Colorado. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's what kind of brought me to the Northeast. And I got to do rock climbing every day. Like everyone there takes a sport. So that was my sport. So, I mean, it was for a Colorado boy coming to the Northeast to be able to like study philosophy and rock climb every day. It was like the dream. So uh, I did that. And then um, towards the end of the West Point experience, you kind of choose which branch of the army you're going to be um, assigned to. And uh, I guess I had good enough grades in philosophy that I was eligible for aviation, which is a pretty competitive branch. And so um, I really thought that just within the branches of the army, that was the best cultural fit. It seemed to be one that was like full of people who really wanted to enjoy what they did. It, it, it takes a lot of study, a lot of technical effort, a lot of training to do it, but it was people who like enjoyed what they did, you know? And so I like that is perfect. Uh, and then as I started, studying within aviation um went to flight school after uh west point down in southern alabama and there everyone learns how to fly the same like basic helicopter first it's a, a bell 206 like the news helicopter versions you'll see and then you get assigned an advanced aircraft and again i kind of chose based on culture there uh, so i chose the um, chinook heavy lift cargo helicopter because these were the teams that when they got kind of deployed to the field for training, they would bring a coffee maker that they could plug into the back of their helicopter and sling, you know, a hammock across the back. And they were very, yeah, cargo. very cargo. It's a cargo guy. You're wearing yeah, like, exactly. uh, they're chill. Yeah. Wearing like so. a Hawaiian shirt. This is great. No, it, I mean, if you could wear a Hawaiian shirt and that would pass as a uniform, these these guys would probably have done that. Yeah, you know? I, I got <laughs> so you. I know you. The guy was the waiting chill. there taking a nap when uh, Indiana Jones is running down the hill with all the <laughs> natives following him, right? Wake up, yeah. Jack. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> so quick start it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of like uh, it worked out that way. And then um, graduate flight school. Uh, bought our first house. And so we had literally just, you know, been through the experience of buying a house. We were, came back from our first deployment. And when you're deployed, you earn tax-free income the whole time you're there. And we had nothing to spend it on. We didn't have kids. We had just like a, you know, we had just started basically post-college. So um, after coming back, we're like, well, it's 2006, you know, we're going into 2007 what better asset class to invest in all these savings within real estate it was just on fire at the time right uh it was the rage and so um we jumped in we uh found that it was so easy to get financing at the time that you could get a loan like every single month <laughs> and for a new single family home <laughs> and so that's what we did we we literally probably closed on a, a new single family investment almost every month for that's about a crazy. year and a half and um, made every naive mistake you can make possible. Uh, but uh, I found that I actually just really liked the experience of like going to a home we had just purchased, walking through, being like, okay, I can improve it with the paint and the carpet and the lighting and a little improvement here and there. And then I'll find a tenant. It'll be this long-term source of uh, wealth. And uh, so it took us 10 years to fix all of our mistakes, but I knew from that first you know, year of investing and owning that that's kind of what I wanted to do long-term as an investment. Uh, and then 
as it turns out, like when my army time was coming to a close, I just realized like I, I never want to do single family rental at a scale before because we got taken for a ride. Uh, but I learned some super valuable lessons. I loved owning something real that I could walk through and physically improve and add value that way. And so, you know, when I get out of the army, I'm going to go learn how to do real estate at scale. I'm going to go purposely seek an MBA program that has an excellent real estate, um, you know, curriculum and real estate club membership and research center. And, um, and we were both fortunate. My wife went to business school with me too. So, um, it was a great pivot point for us both to kind of transition away from the military and into our new career field. So now, sorry. So now I'll get to Lisa's question. Go ahead. I don't even remember what my well, question was. Well, how did you was. get into the sustainability part of it? Like, where did that come from? Oh, the sustainability part. Yeah. Um, so I think there's interestingly, like back to the West Point days, what I chose to study there was philosophy and then everyone does. Uh, it's also an engineering school. So everyone has to pick some type of engineering they want to study. So I did philosophy and environmental engineering. And many of the philosophy courses I took were like environmental ethics. And so it's still maybe attributable to my Colorado days a bit, but that was still what I was very interested in. Such a hippie. Uh, I know, I know. I was in the wrong place in the army for like eight years. You know? <laughs> um, but then, you know, almost put that on the shelf when I was in the army that whole time because it just didn't really apply. And then the first role I got full time when I graduated from Wharton was at Tish Inspire and I was in their leadership development program. So it was a rotational program and you could choose kind of at least when you started the program, what you would prefer to start with. And I was like, you know, I came from an engineering school. I have like technical knowledge through my army experience. I should really do like a design and construction rotation first because I can do project management. I can, you know, I can I add more value from there as a first step than any other job. And, um, that automatically kind of comes with it some um, degree of attention to the sustainability piece. So I, I got my first like lead green associate certificate and then realized like that was pretty interesting. Like I, I'm going to keep going on this track. So then I got a lead uh, accredited professional certificate for building design and construction. And I had just this amazing um, design lead at the time who was my boss, which is very, very um, supportive. Uh, and the, the then uh, lead of sustainability, who is now my friend JP at, at Tishman, uh, was also very supportive of, of pursuing the sustainability education. So that kind of just started the track on commercial real estate sustainability. And then um, as I kind of graduated through the different rotations and ended up in asset management, it became a way that I could follow through on my mandate as an asset manager to add value is to, to kind of prove that sustainability does add value. And um, I transitioned from an asset management role into an ESG lead role, kind of encompassing not only sustainability, but the, the, you know, the social and governance aspects as well as a way to add value for our investors and tenants to really like add this ESG component to our properties. And then um, ended up really just specializing in the sustainability aspect as it took on a bigger and bigger scope as we went national. I love that. One of the uh, folks on my ULI council said that he's trying to start a trend where you say which letter is capitalized. So ESG, ESG capital E, ESG, capital S. ESG. <laughs> I thought that was kind of an interesting way because he thought it was interesting. They were all lumped together. But mm -hmm. so you you broke out into the sustainability piece. What 
What did it look like when you first started doing it? Because I, I feel like this is a space that is evolving so quickly. It that, is, you know, it what is. was the team like when you started? What's what's it like now? <laughs> Tell us everything. Yeah, team is generous. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, with I think just even like industry wide, one of the things that I think had defined the industry at that point is um, is this kind of mixing or uh, maybe a misinterpretation of, of reporting on, you know, activity, but not necessarily impact. And so you can look at, a, you know, people's sustainability credentials on their, their reports or their websites, and it tended to be this mix of things that they had done previously. And I think right around like 2019, 2020, we saw this whole shift in kind of forward thinking commitments with net zero carbon. And suddenly people started to want to pay more attention to not what you had done, but what you're planning on doing. And so when I first took this ESG role, it was a shift away from, you know, let's capture all the sustainability things we've done in our sustainability report and instead put together an ESG business plan and a sustainability business plan. And, and what I've reframed to be my sustainability campaign, where it's like, this is how we're going to, you know, execute our sustainability strategy over our portfolio. And I think that forward looking component was the big shift around that time, because now we do have plans along the climate and energy front and the waste and water and nature components that are forward looking and very much strategic focused. And then that we use as kind of the framework to assign projects and, and measure our progress. And that shift, I think, was the big change right around when I started focusing on it. How do you champion it internally? I mean, I feel like, or and not even internally at Brookfield, but internally within the real estate organization, you know, in the real estate world, like I look at like mm. the wildfires and what's happening in our world. And it's very clear to me that, mm. that we need something, but then the flip side is, you know, everyone's just trying to make a buck and, you know, how right. do you, how do you reconcile it? What do you, what do you have any uh, go-to lines or anything? Yeah. I think, um, what's, what's interesting is that, um, you know, for a long time, the, the energy efficiency type upgrades have always kind of made sense. You never really had to be a champion for that because there was a payback. You know, you wanted to lower operating expenses at your property. You wanted to make it less expensive for your tenants to occupy space there. So you'd always continue to invest in the, you know, the operational efficiency of your building. And that has continued. But I think what has changed is, you know, that was always a very like cost savings metric. And again, probably in the last three years or so, this has flipped to say, okay, you may actually increase your cost at the property, but the value that you're bringing to your tenants and your investors is more valuable than that cost increase. So you should do it. And so, for example, uh, I'm very, very focused on the, the clean energy procurement for our U.S. office portfolio. On average, a clean energy contract will increase the electricity bill by like 10 or 11 percent. That equates to roughly a one or two percent increase in total operating expenses for the property. But for that one or two percent, which in office buildings is also partially or if not mostly recovered from your tenants as well, what you get is a potentially much faster lease up. So in your models, you can decrease you know, the, the lease up duration of your project, or you can decrease the downtime between leases that roll. You can increase the assumptions for tenant retention, and you offer a unique amenity and a service as a landlord to be able to say, hey, you know, tenant 
sophisticated corporate tenant come lease space in my building because by doing so, not only are you going to have a class A building that's very healthy and well run, you're also going to have zero emissions associated with your electricity consumption in your space, which will help you with your own ESG reporting and sustainability goals, which we know is very important to you because now everyone's paying attention right. to that. And so it's something that became unique in that respect. And then even from a valuation perspective, an investor who doesn't want to be exposed to the risk of someone who's not paying attention to the net zero carbon trend and who wants a, a very forward thinking landlord who has decreased their financed emissions, which is now a, a thing, right? People are now paying attention to their scope three financed emissions in their ESG reports. What's a scope three finance uh, emission? It's an indirect emission associated with your investments. Oh. And so uh, if I am a lender or an investor and I invest in a property that has uh, heavy natural gas consumption for heating, for example, I've actually indirectly invested in something that creates carbon emissions through its operations. And so in the value chain of that investment, I should, in my reporting, include an indirect connection to that source of emissions. The whole ecosystem. And whereas huh? a property owner. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything now. So you kind of want to have that be not only a, a tenant amenity and service for the people who are occupying your space, but also a, a service to your lender and your investors who say, okay, I, across my investment portfolio, I want to decrease my emissions. And that's one of the ways that you do it is have these investments be low carbon or net zero carbon, essentially. So, um, you know, that value that you get, it could show up as a decrease in the cap rate when an investor makes a new investment in the property because it's just that much less risk for them to take on, that much more value for them. I think when you add all that up, that's going to by far outweigh the marginal increase in operating expenses that you're going to see. So it's at the end of the day, I mean, obviously, like, well, at the end of the day, it, it is about the money, right? It's kind of, it's, you don't have to be some altruistic hippie uh, from Colorado <laughs> to like yep. Yep. be yes. interested in this, right? Because it's like the investors, they're not going to get the money unless they do this. And then mm -hmm. the operators aren't going to get the investments if they don't do this. And then the banks aren't going to lend right. unless you do this. So where, I mean, where does that actually, where does that ball start? Like who's saying don't yeah. do this or do this? Well, is there like a, you know, what's interesting is, um, so there's uh, a guy named Mark Carney who joined Brookfield Asset Management as the chairman of our impact investing. It was probably two years ago, maybe three. Uh, he's the former bank of former former governor of the Bank of Canada, former governor of the Bank of England. He's now like the UN's climate special envoy, like very very high profile in um, worldwide climate um, efforts. And one of the, he actually wrote a book called Values, where he writes that um, just because something doesn't necessarily have market value per se, the value that we put on it is what's going to drive its financial value, its investment value for people. So he has been very well known and outspoken and supportive, saying that, look, this transition to a zero carbon economy is an imperative because it's a threat to us all personally with this climate risk, but also it's probably the greatest single commercial opportunity that we'll see in a, at least a generation because those companies that are able to pivot and assist and add value by transitioning into the net zero economy will far outperform because that's what society is now valuing. 
And so if you can deliver on society's values by offering the types of investments and properties and operating experience and businesses that accelerate that transition, then you are going to be a more valuable, successful company than those who are not. And so that theme from you know, someone who's essentially at like the chairman level within the Brookfield Asset Management ecosystem is shared really throughout like the leadership of the company. And so when I'm talking about rolling out a new clean energy investment strategy, even within the Brookfield Properties leadership, they want to do it faster and they want to do it more authentically and more directly and with a more transparent connection to the source of energy. And so it's this very, uh, I'd say, you know, fortunately consistent theme within the company that people see it not only as this uh, moral imperative that we have this great opportunity to lead, but also something that is immense value commercially. So interesting, Michael. And then I think to myself, there's a whole generation of leaders who may not, you know, buy into this, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a silly thing to even say, but they're so focused on their bottom line, recovering from COVID, whatever it might be. And, you know, I've asked you this before, but it's like, where do you even start, right? I understand if you're Brookfield, maybe there's a, you know, but you're like, you own, you know, 20,000 units or you own 20 hotels or like, how do you get started on this in a way that it could be, it could not crush your company, right? How, yeah. how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it goes to this first step back, like almost a self-assessment, like knowing that ESG is important globally now educate yourself just with the basics okay what is esg in, in environmental social governance right like, like that's the fundamental essential okay well environmentally you know what is the impact on our even small operations on the environment maybe i'm a you know single family residential portfolio owner for example <laughs> and you know uh, i'm i'm certainly using a lot of electricity i'm certainly probably using natural gas i'm using materials and uh, construction materials that I purchase and probably hauling trash. So a lot of the operations that I'm doing day to day have an environmental footprint. And like step one is just to measure it. Like it doesn't even have to be this grand scale. It's just like, how much electricity do I use? How much gas do I use? What's the, you know, the, the volume of, uh, materials that I'm purchasing and where is it coming from and how much waste? And that's just establishing a baseline. And so as soon as you establish a baseline, then you, you know, go back to your company values, your, your purpose, what you're trying to do from a fundraising perspective, how you're trying to operate. It's like, okay, what aspect of that do I want to try to influence and control? And what do I want to be able to talk about that's consistent with my values? And that's where you start with those projects. I think it's a little more challenging when you start getting into the S and the G because it's a little harder to establish this like quantitative baseline. But at the same time, it gives you a little bit more freedom because you can say, look, social element of my business is important. Here's what I'm doing to engage the primary stakeholders that affect my business. That's my community, my employees, my customers. Like if you just went to those major groups of people that are involved in your business, well, how are you supporting them from a social angle? Are you engaging your employees? Are you training them? Are you taking care of them? Are they excited to come to work? Like that is, that's a social effort within ESG? Is it a diverse workforce? Are you, um, you know, are you being fair, just, I mean, these things are, are all categorized under S. And so it's not that hard to, to piece together that strategy. You just kind of take a step back and look at it. But then there's like the, the customer engagement piece. Are you collecting their feedback? Are you making their enjoyment of your, of your, um, your offering, your, 
house or the single family home, the office that you're, you know, leasing to them, is that an enjoyable experience for them? Are you taking their feedback? And obviously the community, like, does your community even want you there? Like, are you a positive influence on the community by having that building uh, there that you're operating? Like, are you welcoming the community into your buildings? Are you providing programming? Are you giving them opportunity? You know, are you a meaningful member of the society that you're operating in? So I think like, even if you were to just start with that social element, you'd have great coverage. And then G, I think if I could sum summarize the governance element of ESG in its most simple form, it's, it's accountability. And so like, do you have things in your company that hold you accountable for what you have said that you're going to do? And do you have processes in place to keep that? And are you transparent about the, the process and the result? And so that could come in the form of a, you know, a, a stakeholder report that you send out to your community investors or customers about what you're doing and the progress you've made towards it. Do you have um, you know, well-vetted and established policies in terms of what you actually want to do along the ESG framework? Is someone actually accountable for ESG and how does that work? So um, I think that would well cover it at almost any scale as a starting point. And then, you know, I can probably talk ad nauseum on the, the nuances you can get into as you go into each, especially on the environmental front, which is what I focus on now. But um, just starting is probably the best and just and where you can establish a baseline, whether that's an environmental impact or a number of people who you're engaging with or employee turnover or you know there's a lot of things that you can use to establish a baseline but then get that baseline established and start measuring progress and then so brookfield's a uh, canadian company right and so do you find do you feel it's easier i mean i, I don't know if it's for sure but like I, I feel like a lot of other countries a lot of european countries and i feel canada has a lot of very european mentality and connection there <laughs> are very much ESG's the yeah. name of the game. Um, it's much more accepted. Uh, do you feel like Brookfield, because uh, it's Canadian, has a... I think that's part a, of it. But I also think it's part of like the investor pool that really is seeking to invest in, in Brookfield. So like, if if I were a, a local like New York developer, for example, I would not going to be seeking to raise funds from the same pool that Brookfield is. Like, Brookfield continues to grow its funds. And even this most recent um, impact investing fund, like they, they raised a $15 billion global transition fund for net zero carbon efforts. And then that was oversubscribed. They had to cap it and they committed it all in one year. And now they're raising their second that's targeting probably close to 20 billion. And so like if you're raising 15, 20 billion dollar funds and they do, they do similar sizes on the real estate side, like 10, 12, $15 billion funds your primary investors are going to be large sovereign wealth funds. They're going to be big pension funds, insurance companies, and those types of funds that are putting out that kind of money are very sensitive to, you know, again, the global values. And so if I'm a very um, visible public fund that is very concerned about managing risk and reputation in my brand, I'm going to try to align with investments that uh, that don't provide risk, that establish my brand, and that help further the causes that the world cares about. And so, like when Brookfield goes out to raise that kind of money, those are the primary investors, and they look at Brookfield and they say, "Oh, you're you're very well situated to execute on the strategies that we care about at scale." And so that's a great fit for both sides. I, I think that's a huge influence on Brookfield because those are so you know, that 
part of our stakeholder group is so influential in what we do. It's so interesting. And it's so, I mean, I have to believe that at the top of the house, and it's not in Brookfield, but in some of these organizations, it's probably very polarized, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. understands that. And yet it's just, you know, when you look at the bottom line today, you know, mm -hmm. we have to feed our families today. It's, right. you know, it's hard. And I think I, you know, I was, I heard uh, Sarah Queen at MetLife saying how they actually had data to support that on the cell, they were, they were making more than had they not put these, these practices mm -hmm. into place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the data that gets the, yep. the other folks kind of on board. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, that even within Brookfield, sometimes that conversation comes up on a forward looking basis because a lot of this is so new that, you know, if you're, you know, we've, we've obviously made a net zero commitment. So if we're going to purchase a new property or pursue a new development, now it needs to be done and underwritten on the basis of a net zero framework too. And a lot of the professionals who have been in development underwriting and acquisition underwriting for a long time, they don't really know where to put that in their models to say, yeah, this is the incremental value because there aren't necessarily extensive comps like what Sarah may have been referring to in the market to say, I'm going to get X more rent or I'm going to be able to speed it up that much more. But I think we're now starting to see whether it's like anecdotally through leasing tours of tenants who are interested in buildings that are going to be renewably powered, or if it's, you know, some of our tenants are actually now writing it into their lease that the building has to be renewably powered. And so um, I think these things will evolve and that investment thesis will start to be even further proven out to be of significant value. Um, but there is this kind of period where it's, it's new enough where you kind of have to also go a little bit on the vision of what's trying to be achieved and, and recognize that like the, we do think that people are going to value this. We don't necessarily know exactly how that's going to play out, but um, people are showing up writing very large investments. And um, you know, so that's already a bit of a endorsement of the strategy in itself. And, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit, but I think that from a, a talent perspective, right. So you have young folks who are looking to get into this, I suspect mm -hmm. it's not that challenging to figure out where their hearts are and how they how they get into it. But mm -hmm. and and I think the leaders in the space like yourself have already gravitated towards it. But filling in those kind of middle ranks of people, mm -hmm. trying to find someone who's actually passionate about it, but also ROI focused, like. That's kind of an interesting space to play in. And I'm just wondering, have, what have you experienced? I'll, I mean, we could share what we have, but yeah, I'm curious. It, it's super tough. I would, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your experience there too. But it's um, it's tough because there's a lot of visionaries in this space, right? Who like are very idealistic, who really want to go out there and make a difference uh, and yet don't have the business context to, to be able to frame it and say like, well, this is the kind of project that you can do that maybe fulfills that need but at the same time makes good commercial business sense and so you have a lot of people who are just coming out of school who that's maybe where they want to start is something environmentally related something very purposeful driven and where i've seen um probably more success is you know learn the essentials of the business and try to find ways that you can as you're learning those and as you get more and more experience you can put a sustainable you know sheen on it where you're really focused on learning asset management, for example, and also learning how you can integrate sustainable projects into the asset management business plan that you're managing or 
you know, thinking creatively how you can start to reflect the value of a sustainable investment in your Argus, you know, cash flow model that you're working on as an asset management analyst. And so that's a little bit more challenging because they, they want to be very impactful from the start without understanding fully how the business works. So it's almost more successful if you find someone who has learned, you know, the business element and then sees the light, so to speak, <laughs> like how much sustainability is really valued now and can say, oh, well, this is how this works. I know exactly how we could underwrite this plan. Put it here and this is where the value is going to show up. And like, oh, you got to yes, change it from the exactly inside. Exactly. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know the old expression, like if you're young and you're not liberal, you have no heart. But if you're old <laughs> and you're not, you, have, yeah. you know, yeah. and I feel like you have to find those, you know, and then call out to their their younger mm -hmm. selves, right? It's yeah. an interesting. Yeah. It's you know, I think assessing talent for these roles is one of the mm -hmm. hardest things that we have to do because it's it, you have to really get to the core of that person. Right. Right. So you right. can't usually, yeah, I mean, you could see it on paper, maybe in their outside interests, but you can't see yeah. it on paper from their education. You can't. So it, it really takes time. And I've found that a lot of folks who kind of come over from Europe do have mm. have a little more of that. But of course, as an American, we want a homegrown up. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, it's uh, it's it's interesting. What makes it good? Yeah. I think there's also like what are the skill sets that you have to use now in your role? <laughs> um learning at an accelerated pace is huge uh i think in many cases you know um my learning and building of a recommendation to senior leadership will will predate my knowledge of that topic by maybe like six months and so i'll be six months ahead of a complete layman and we'll have studied it and you know bounced ideas off consultants and uh, gone to events and learned from books and webcasts and everything. And then I am learning and able to then translate what I'm learning into concise advice that I can, you know, tell business leaders, this is what I recommend you do confidently and be able to back up my recommendation. And that's only becoming more and more important is the pace at which you can absorb an enormous amount of information, distill it down to concise recommendations that are impactful. So that's like number one. Um, and then I'd say on top of that is this communication element. So, um, you know, it, it's not enough to, to learn something. You also have to know how to talk about it and to talk about it to different groups. And so there's also a, a political element to it where it's almost like a diplomacy piece. That's a lot of finesse in learning, um, how these various stakeholders view the world and what might be interesting to them and what they might not be concerned at all about. And um, it's like, as you are able to learn and communicate the essentials of these relatively complex topics, then being able to also translate that into something that's meaningful for powerful people uh, is critical, you know? And so I, those three elements, I think in particular are like sustainability foundations. You know? So there's really not like one, I mean, you mentioned one background being like coming out of asset management or the investment side. So you kind of understand the operations of an asset. Um, is there any sort of other sort of backgrounds that would you think would make a good fit or that you kind of look for when you're searching for? Yeah, I mean, people? I've, um, not to be flippant, but I have heard that's like any job can be a green job. And I think there's, 
there's way so that, flippant. Um, I know, I know. Uh, but <laughs> I'm kidding. Any way that like you understand the business from a particular angle, you can be effective there. So I mean, I've even had conversations with our property accountants talking about like, hey, you know, if, if you understand carbon accounting and are able to do what's emerging as equivalent to a financial statement is a carbon emissions statement. Like that's an enormous value that you can add because you understand financially how a business operates. Uh, leasing is huge even. So that's a sure. like foundational value driver within our industry, obviously, but like for a leasing professional who understands the sustainability angle, they can help communicate that, they can help prioritize that, they can help kind of steer the conversations towards things and help translate things so that interested businesses who want to pursue these types of things know which buildings might help them the most. Um, so, you know, even then, and then the physical, like operations, design and construction component, if you know how buildings are actually built and run, then you're also able to add a more realistic practical lens to the types of projects that can be done in support of sustainability. And I think even from a, if you were to take a step back and like from an asset management acquisitions professional who's interested in sustainability, you might not know enough about how properties are run or how financial statements are, or how leasing efforts are actually done to, to be able to piece that all together. So I think that it's actually not any one particular background set, but more a mindset mindset shift that takes you to just like, well, how can I do this job that I know very well and integrate in sustainability thinking? So it's almost, it's interesting because it's almost like some of these these other roles, like you look at maybe like a fundraising role or something where it could either be its own separate group or mm -hmm. you build it out within the business line, right? right. So that you're right. An acquisitions person focused on ESG. You're a mm -hmm. asset manager focused on ESG, and so it's almost. I wonder, you know, could people start to understand this and then add this to their credentials as a, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of make them stand out? Like I have all these acquisitions people who are like miserable because very few <laughs> things are trading, right? And they're like, "What do I do right. now?" And I right. keep telling them to go to MIT and take a data analytics class. But maybe the answer is get get an ESG certificate of some kind and add that yeah. to the arsenal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, going back to that values point, right? If you're an acquisitions professional and you know how to underwrite and you know which levers within an acquisitions model drive value and you're interested in sustainability, you can actually seek out the types of investments that add extra value on top of what would be traditionally valued and learn how to pitch that, learn how to demonstrate that value and communicate it and show it in the right kinds of ways that you know, the, the decision makers who are making these purchase decisions can understand and value. And I think that's a unique approach. It's kind of like our job. We have to, find, we have to show our right. value you know? and why people it's should buy. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> well, we could use your help on this podcast because you've just entered the hot seat. Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. 
They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. It was less hot before global warming, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, be ready. Bring it yeah. on. Yeah. So we'd love to ask you for a podcast or book recommendation. Mm. Uh, so I'll start with the book recommendation. Uh, the Ministry for the Future. Awesome way to imagine a near future, uh, highly impacted by climate change. Um, podcast, Rich Roll, oh, yeah. definitely. Ah. I, I follow him on Instagram. I don't really know what his podcast is about. It is amazing. He has long form conversations. So these are more like one to three hour podcast uh-huh. episodes, but like with very thought provoking, just edge thinking people who are just like, well, I don't know, just open your mind about how you think about certain things. Interesting. What's it called? It's fascinating. Uh, the Rich Roll Podcast. Oh, okay. That's R-O-H-L, I believe, right? R-O-H-R. It's R-I-C-H-R-O-L-L. Sorry. Totally Roll. wrong both times. Um, he's got a great story by by himself, so he's worth checking out just for his own story, but um, great podcast. I uh, I know. we should. Maybe we can start doing some long forms. Like It's, it's hard. It's hard to fit it in your day. It's right. Hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I recommended a podcast to you the other day, Kelly's podcast from Live mm-hmm. Core. It, they're, yeah. they're three minutes each, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> investment the opposite end of the spectrum. Yep. Better today than yesterday in three minutes. Mm-hmm. It's great. What do you What do you do yeah. during your? Uh, do you watch any? Do you have any TV shows? What do you do during your downtime? <laughs> if you have any downtime, uh, I, have, I have three children, so I, have I don't have that much downtime. But um, I do love. Uh, anything outdoors still there's the Colorado still in me. So anytime I can go hiking, biking, camping, rock climbing, there's an indoor rock climbing gym. That's 15 minute bike ride from where I live. So I do that every weekend. And, um, that's what keeps me grounded. Get some perspective. Mm. You know what? Brookfield should have recruited you for, we just did the JDRF real estate games. Your team was outstanding, but they should have recruited you for the rock climbing. They were very weak on the rock climbing. <laughs> Had I known that there was a rock climbing piece of JDRF, I would have been like front and line. I'm yeah. into win next year, so I might be recruiting you to our team. So. Right. There's rock climbing. I'm in. Excellent. Excellent. We got a ringer. What is your most memorable project? 665th Avenue. It's, uh, I got to work on that property as an asset manager, uh, right when we were buying it, when Brookfield prepaid a 99 year ground lease to buy 666 Fifth Avenue from the Kushners and then proceeded to spend $400 million repositioning it. And then I got to work on it from the sustainability side, getting the property into the New York like empire building challenge. And I'm currently working on the renewable electricity procurement deal for the property, but that property was also previously built by Tishman. So it's got all kinds of uh, interesting overlap to my professional career. And it's just a fascinating project and probably one of the most beautiful office buildings in the city now. Do you have a go-to interview question that you ask people to get a sense of, you know, the, the 
the underlying beliefs that they have or the passion around this that they have? Is there anything that you've heard asked or, or ways of parsing out who might be right versus wrong? Hmm. Um, I kind of like to flip the tables a little bit on people and like if uh, almost kind of imagine that they're like a couple years into the role that they're interviewing for and like what advice would they give someone who's starting into it? Just kind of gets them thinking about uh, a longer term perspective in the role and um, like how they might take more of like a guide or mentor type perspective in that role too. Not someone who's acquiring, you know, tries trying to like acquire this next role, but more so like if you imagine that you're in it and looking back, uh, what's some advice for someone who's just starting to be? I like that. That's a great question. My uh, one of my good buddies, um, that's that's his like kind of his new theme he started doing was uh, living life backwards, like mm-hmm. from death mm-hmm. to where he is now, yep. and um, yep. living according to that. That's yeah, I love that. I wish I would. I mean, I wish I would just remember that. Right. You just gotta call. Just call yeah, it. just call me every morning. Send me a text every morning with that. <laughs> Careful <laughs> what you ask for. Yeah. Um, I'm up early. Yeah. This. I mean, this one's. Sh- it's pretty straightforward for your role, but it's not always straightforward with a lot of the folks that we ask. How does your job and or real estate have impact? That one, fortunately, uh, have an enormous opportunity for impact. Um, I'm just, I'm very fortunate to be at a company that has immense scale. So it's pretty fun to be able to put together like these massive projects and deals where you know, if they're successful, you do something like the equivalent, like we're on the electricity side, for example, where when this goes through, it'll be the equivalent of avoiding the burning of 300 million pounds of coal. That's each crazy. Year. Like that's pretty amazing, you know? And so the, the scale and the opportunity for impact and the freedom that I have to explore these types of things is pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. You are pretty amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Michael, thanks for hopping on the podcast with us and sharing your experience. Thanks for having me. 